Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. So I wanted to ask you, could you start by just talking a little bit about the history of feticide as a charge in terms of its origin and intended application? Absolutely. Um, feticide laws are not a new phenomenon. Um, they have been on the books in many states uh, here in the U.S. for decades. Um, and there are 38 states that have these laws on the books. So it's almost every state. It's a, you know, it's a very uh, common statute. Um, and they do not apply to legally performed or induced abortions, which uh, avoids a constitutional conflict. But the original intent of the statutes was to protect pregnant women and their unborn fetuses from third-party actors that might harm them. Um, there's also a federal law called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which I think describes the original intent of the feticide laws. Um, so for example, if you had a uh, domestic violence perpetrated against a pregnant woman, the feticide laws would allow for prosecution of harm to both the mother and the fetus. Um, so they were originally presented as a way to protect women and unborn children. Um, but as you were discussing on today's show, um, they're starting to be applied in a way that was not originally intended. Or even a you know, vehicular homicide where a pregnant woman is killed by someone else's negligent driving and um, she has, you know, a seven-month-old fetus, the negligent driver could be prosecuted for um, harm, again, to both her and the unborn child. Okay, so how can feticide be proven for a conviction? Well, one of the big issues in a feticide case is the age of the fetus. And I think most people are familiar with the concept of viability, which is when the fetus can live outside of the woman's body on its own. Um, but when that point occurs is somewhat controversial. You know, some people will say 22 weeks, some people say 25 weeks. Um, it depends very much on the individual uh, fetus, on the, the health of the mother, the technological uh, resources that are available to them, the health care that they receive. So in this case, the age of Pervy Patel's fetus was hotly contested, um, and the and sort of the, the final age that, that was settled on put it into uh, a realm of feticide rather than say just a miscarriage, and that's that is sort of a it's it's a bad fusion of law and medicine where medicine or um, might, or science, biology, whatever, might um, recognize a gray area, but the law cannot. The law has a very black and white um, stance towards this issue. And so in Pervy Patel's case, I think that the determination of the age of the fetus was possibly, um, excuse me, you're gonna, you may have to edit that part right there. Okay. Um, the, the age of the fetus um, was, well, it was, it was contested. Um, is there a part where I can back up and restate that? Sure. I don't have a recording of my own 
Um, can we just do that question again? Yeah, sure. Do you want me to say the question again, or are you just going to go for it? No, I'll say the question again. Okay. So how can feticide be proven for a conviction? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. No, I didn't. Okay, let me start over. How can feed well, it's probably good if we <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay, so how can feticide be proven for a conviction? Um, well, it depends on the age of the fetus. And that's something that um, can be difficult to determine. Um, for example, in the case of Parve Patel, um, there was no way to determine when uh, she first became pregnant and the age of the fetus was contested. So this is a place where law and medicine don't exactly match, the law, re uh, the law cannot recognize sort of a gray area where, um, you know, between 22 and 24 weeks, where does, where does viability end? Because that is the, that is the boundary of the law. It, the, the circumstances of the, the, I don't want to call it a, a birth, but the, the, when, when the fetus exits the woman's body, um, and it is not alive, that would that is necessary for a determination of feticide or conviction under that law. Okay, so last year, Parvi Patel was convicted of feticide for what would have possibly been a miscarriage, and then a few years before that, Bebe Shwai tried to kill herself with rat poison while pregnant and was also charged with feticide. Both of these took place in the state of Indiana, and now just recently we have the new law in that state against aborting a fetus with certain abnormalities. Do you have any insight into what is going on with reproductive justice in Indiana, or is Indiana unique in its law and the way it's prosecuted? The, uh, those are great questions. The Indiana law is not unique in the way that it is written. Uh, if you look at um, that statute compared to the other 38 in the country, it reads very similarly. Um, and that's part of what I think is so scary about the situation. Um, the difference in the Patel and the Shui case is the way that the law was utilized to prosecute women themselves rather than those third-party actors that the laws were originally intended to uh, target. Um, so in, in Patel's case, um, the, so the, the charges that the prosecutor chose to bring um, were unique, and the way that the case was put through the trial was also unique. Um, so for example, one of the issues in the Patel case was whether her fetus was born alive or not. Um, and that goes back to the question you asked about what is necessary for a, a feticide conviction. Um, and in Patel's case, so they're trying to determine was, was the fetus alive or not at the time that she um, allegedly miscarried. And they, the judge allowed some particular evidence to come before the jury that is called the float test. And just briefly, um, what this means is that they, they take the fetus's body and surgically removes the lungs and place them in water. If the lungs float, it is assumed that the, that the fetus took at least one breath um, outside of the mother's body. Now, this is a test that has been discredited for almost 100 years, um, and there are 
other ways that air can get into a fetus's lungs aside from the active breathing. Um, not to mention that just because the fetus took a breath does not mean that it was a sustainable life. Um, but that's an example of evidence that was put before the jury that in another case might not have been. And this evidence was supposedly pivotal uh, or potentially pivotal to the outcome of the case. Um, so allowing the judge's decision to allow that information to come before the jury was part of the conviction. Um, or necessary for the conviction. Um, so, so that makes Patel's case um, different than most of the others that have come before under the same feticide laws. That's incredible. That's, I, I'm really surprised, but I guess I shouldn't be. Um, it, is, it is shocking. Yeah, it, it, it is. I'm going to edit that out, but that's just, it's amazing. Okay, um, what I mean is my stammering I'm editing out. Um, but you can edit out, edit out mine too. All right. <laughs> um, now, I know this one is a little bit touchy, this, this question here, but both women I mentioned were of Asian descent, and I've noticed specifically descended from China and from India, and both very big countries with large populations. And I can't help but think there's some significance here or wondering you know, if they're being treated a certain way, perhaps to make an example um, in our country, is there potentially something strategic about the state of Indiana targeting women of color or these particular women of color? Um, well, you are uh, certainly not alone in asking that question. I think it is, um, is certainly suspicious that they chose to prosecute um, two different women with uh, countries of origin outside of the United States. Um, I think that strategically what Indiana is doing is targeting more vulnerable women um, who may not have access to health care or legal resources um, in order to establish a precedent that they can then apply to all women. Um, and I know in uh, Bebe Shui's case, she did not have access to legal representation at the time. Um, so it was kind of a, uh, and she ended up spending, I think, about a year in jail um, because of that. Um, so she was a, a, a particularly vulnerable person, and she was also having mental health issues at the time. So there really are targeting women who, um, who are vulnerable and need help, and then, you know, we can, we can see that establishing that precedent has many, many you know, potentially damaging downstream consequences for other women in the state and possibly across the country. Right. That, that brings me to another question. What do you think these rulings mean for the rest of the nation potentially? Well, as we, you know, as I mentioned before, there are 38 states with these laws on the books. So if Indiana can turn, can take their law and turn it against pregnant women, then one has to ask, what prevents any other state from doing the same? So it's, it's a very scary, slippery slope that we're looking at. There, some of these laws have been used in other cases, um, such as uh, women who have delayed cesarean surgery. Um, I believe there was a case of a woman who was falling, fell down the stairs um, and, and was prosecuted under a, uh, a feticide law. 
Um, so basically, any woman who cannot guarantee a positive or a quote-unquote normal outcome to her pregnancy could be vulnerable to prosecution under these laws. Right, and that is exactly one of my concerns, so I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, actually, that does lead into my next question for you, which is what are the legal implications women face when potential natural miscarriage or even self-induced abortion can be criminalized as if it were homicide? I think you kind of touched on that there, but is there anything else that you could like elaborate on with that? Well, some people call it the criminalization of pregnancy. Um, as a, I mean, as a female person and your, yourself also, you know that we, we are vulnerable to impregnation and the idea that one could be impregnated against her will and then forced to either sustain the pregnancy or that, that she could become, or that you could be prosecuted for murder if you had, God forbid, a miscarriage. Um, that is just terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that too. I'm thinking about, um, you know, a world where a woman has a miscarriage or a stillbirth, or or is proven to have induced her own abortion at home. But with any of these um, being brought in, like to trial or having doctors um, give their determinations, where we're using these really archaic means that apparently aren't scientifically accurate or useful is really alarming because a lot of women just they have no control over these but now they're being held completely accountable that's to me that's very frightening it's terrifying it's just terrifying and especially because as we know as females you don't always have control over whether you become pregnant or not um you know, women women are impregnated through rape. Women are impregnated accidentally, um, and the idea that something like that could result in a prosecution for murder is—it's hard to believe. Yeah, it seems like this dystopian future. Exactly. I was just going to say that. Exactly. Wow, it's frightening. So. When it comes to the reproductive rights of women and girls, are there any approaches within feminism which turn out to be sort of detrimental to the cause or just like our overall freedom and autonomy? Um, well, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, if, you look, if we look at the, the history of um, the reproductive rights movement, you know, the, the pro-choice uh, terminology is very popular and embedded in our cultural lexicon about abortion. Um, but I think it's actually not enough. Um, choice is something that we hear a lot. Oh, women have choices. It's empowering. Um, but you look at Parvi Patel or Bebe Shui, they were in a state where abortion was legal. Um, they, you know, ostensibly had the same choices as other women, but that did not protect them, and it did not make them happy mothers, uh, or want to be happy mothers. Um, so, you know, whether it's because the abortion is, you know, physically inaccessible to them, um, some people may be familiar with um, the, the cases in Texas about access or distance to the nearest abortion provider. Um, that's one kind of access. There's financial access. There is even cultural access. 
um, one of the one of the concerns in, in Parvi Patel's case was that she didn't want to share her pregnancy with her family. Um, so you have to ask what good is a, a choice, you know, it's strictly legal, abortion is, is legal, um, you know, but is that enough uh, where abortion is not accessible? And so I think that there, that approaching, approaching the right to abortion or access to abortion merely as a choice is, is a very privileged approach to, to the issue. Um, I think it, you know, abortion has to be not only legal, but it has to be accessible, and, and it also has to be socially acceptable. Not just accessible, but acceptable. Um, because otherwise, you know, people will not access their choices or cannot access their choices, and in which case, having a choice is, is no choice. Um, so I think there are different approaches um, that we can take and rethinking what choice means is an important part of that. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help Pervy Patel or to just stop this from becoming an increasing trend within the justice system? Um, well, that's a, that's a difficult question. Um, but something that, that I noticed in, in reading about the Baby Shui case was that um, public pressure um, contributed to the, it, it was not a dismissal of charges, she ended up pleading to a, to a lesser misdemeanor, um, but putting, putting public pressure on prosecutors and judges um, is one way to potentially um, support women who are in this situation. Um, and I've also, I also heard um, that because the Purdy Patel case was historically unprecedented, I think people were not prepared for, um, for the consequences. Maybe like, I remember when it was going on and I thought, there's no way they can prosecute her. Well, or, you know, they can prosecute her, but there's no way she'll be convicted. Well, she was. Um, there is a wonderful um, study that was done in 2013 by Lynn Paltrow of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women and Dean Flavin of Fordham University. And it's called Arrests of and Forced Interventions on Pregnant Women in the United States from 1973 to 2005. And I believe they found about 400 pieces. Um, So it's a, a comprehensive, collection and examination of those. Um, However, just in the title, you can see it's from 1973 to 2005. Um, And since that that time, there is no um, comprehensive accounting of the kinds of cases and convictions that Patel and and Shui endured. Um, So a, a need remains to document these cases um, so that we have public awareness of them and to possibly demonstrate the extent to which they're being used. Um, certainly if we don't even know what we're working with, it's hard to argue against it. Um, so I think awareness about this and um, public pressure. Um, we may also, depending on how this plays out and whether fetus laws start being turned against pregnant women in other states, 
Um, it could even become a matter of trying to get some of those laws revised or taken off the books. Um, and we talked in the beginning of the segment here about the original intent. And if the original intent is not being served by the laws, um, maybe they don't have a place on our state law books. Thank you for giving us some time to talk to us today, Elizabeth. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add for the listeners? Uh, no, this is a very interesting case, and thank you for um, inviting me to talk about it.